You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Onyi Afwaka. This is the WFHB Local News for Thursday, June 23rd, 2022. Later in the program, we have Civic Conversations, a monthly podcast collaboration between WFHB Local News and the League of Women Voters of Bloomington and Monroe County. More in the bottom half of our program. Also coming up in the next half hour, the State House will reconvene for a special session on July 6th to tackle the governor's tax refund proposal. However, the special session may also discuss the future of Indiana's abortion laws. That's coming up next in your State House Roundup. Good afternoon. This is your State House Roundup for June 23rd, 2022. Indiana Governor Eric Holcomb called on the State House to reconvene for a special session on July 6th. The special session aims to tackle the governor's proposal to send out $225 payments to all Indiana taxpayers drawing from the state's budget surplus. In a statement, the governor said, quote, This is the fastest, fairest, and most efficient way to return taxpayers hard-earned money in a time of economic strain, end quote. However, the session would not be limited to only the topic of the governor's tax refund plan. The Republican-dominated legislature could take action toward abortion restrictions, depending on how the U.S. Supreme Court votes on a case that could end nationwide abortion access. According to the Associated Press, in the next week or so, the Supreme Court will rule on a Mississippi law banning most abortions after 15 weeks. An early leaked draft of the court's opinion showed that the justices voted to strike down Roe v. Wade and give the states the authority to regulate abortions. The AP reported in March that 100 of the 110 GOP legislators signed a letter asking the governor to call them back in a special session if abortion is, quote, wholly or partially overturned, end quote. The second case of monkeypox was identified in Indiana after a Gary resident contracted the virus. The case was confirmed Sunday after testing on Saturday. Last weekend, the Indiana State Department of Health sent out a press release detailing the first confirmed case of monkeypox in the state. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, monkeypox is rare and does not spread easily between people with close contact. The CDC says the threat of monkeypox to the general U.S. population remains low. Symptoms of the virus include flu-like symptoms in addition to a rash that can look like pimples on the face, inside the mouth, and on other parts of the body. The virus spreads through direct contact with the infectious rash, sexual activity, and touching items that previously came into contact with the rash. Pregnant people can also spread the virus through the placenta. According to the Gary Health Commissioner, Dr. Roland Walker, 
the patient has been isolated and has reached out to close contacts. State Health Commissioner Dr. Christina Box said to check with your healthcare provider if you have any new signs of symptoms. As temperatures climb to 90 degrees and higher this week, Indiana University's Environmental Resilience Institute reports that extreme heat is the deadliest weather hazard in the U.S. The ERI says that over the next 30 years, average temperatures in Indiana are projected to rise about 5 to 6 degrees Fahrenheit due to climate change. According to the ERI, that means, quote, the frequency, duration, and intensity of heat waves are expected to increase across the Midwest, end quote. Some groups are more vulnerable to the effects of extreme heat, including people experiencing homelessness, low-income communities, communities of color, and people who suffer from health conditions such as heart disease or mental illness. For more information on how communities can prepare for extreme heat, you can visit eri.iu.edu. And that's all for your Statehouse Roundup. Up next, we have some coverage on the latest Monroe County Library Board of Trustees meeting. At the Monroe County Public Library Board of Trustees meeting on June 15th, Director Greer Carson gave a monthly director's report on the library. So a few highlights to share with everyone. Our Library of Things collection continues to grow in popularity. It saw significant use in May. The iPads in particular are heavily used, and we've even heard some requests from the public specifically for additional iPads, so we are going to be pursuing that. Our outreach van service is back and using our brand new van, Just great to see. Adult Services started a new program for adults 60 and over called the Golden Agers Club, which focuses on physical movement, brain-boosting games and crafts. And we're highlighting this because we often focus so many of our discussions in terms of programming on children and teens and trying to engage with new audiences and age groups. And it's important to remember that we create programming and opportunities for all age groups. Our youth starter card visits to first grade classrooms occurred in May. 54 of those students then returned to the library with parents or guardians to upgrade their cards, which is one of the main reasons why we do that program. During the first eight days of summer reading, which began on May 23rd, we distributed 1,281 summer reading program game boards. That's nearly 1,300 registered summer reading program patrons in just one week. And then... Um, there was a question at the last board meeting about how we handle training for things like active shooter, given everything that's going on in our country right now. And since then, um, we've been working to more or less overhaul our active shooter training plan, and we've adopted an annual uh, training schedule by department and branch. So we will be doing uh, real-time location-specific active shooter training with all staff on an annual basis, and that began this week. Carson also updated the board about the Southwest Branch construction. Okay, so kind of more of the same. The concrete wall framework installation and waterproofing work is nearly complete, but they're still working on that. We have confirmed plans to include a new type of glass partition on the south-facing wall, and there will be a change order coming for that. It won't be significant, but it's well worth it. Uh, we have also confirmed plans to include a sliding metal gate to better secure the IT and electrical rooms. Then there will be a related change order coming for that as well. 
We are in the process of resolving two temporary easements, one from Duke Electric and the other from the Highway Department, which we discussed last month. And the next construction meeting is tomorrow. We have these meetings on site so we can view progress, uh, ask questions about the structure, learn a little bit in the process. I, for one, learn a lot every time we have these construction meetings. Um, so progress continues. We're very much on track for what we hope will be a May 2023 grand opening. President of the board, Christine Harrison, introduced the resolution to extend the COVID leave policy for another six months. And the next item is, um, we've approved this a couple of times now since COVID came upon us. And so um, we are proposing to um, extend the COVID leave policy for another six months. So do I have a motion to go forward with the COVID leave policy? Carson commented that the staff has used the leave policy responsibly. Sure. So just a little bit of background. We've had this in place since January of 2021. So this would be the fourth time we've asked to renew this. We do it in six-month intervals simply so we can maintain some flexibility because the landscape of the pandemic can and does change. Uh, but this policy has provided all MCPL employees with 10 full days of sick leave specific to COVID-related leave needs, and that includes being advised by a medical professional to self-quarantine due to COVID-related concerns, experiencing symptoms regarding COVID and seeking a diagnosis, or a bona fide need to care for an individual subject to quarantine regarding COVID. Our staff have actually made very responsible use of this. Um, just sort of some quick numbers. In 2021, we had 23 employees use the policy for a total of 433 hours of leave with an average of just under 19 hours used per individuals. Uh, and in 2022, we have so far had 24 employees use this policy for a total of 708 hours of leave with an average of just under 30 hours per individual. Now, these are unique individuals, so 23 and 24 unique employees, respectively, which is a pretty good indication that it's being used. Um, but really, more than anything, I think um, not having to take your own sick leave for COVID-related issues, which could be repeating, and for, in some cases that does happen, um, it's also kind of a safety net. It's a way for the library to say, we're going to take care of you in these unique uh, times, um, and, and you're not going to have to worry about managing sick leave and personal leave on top of a COVID-related situation. The board unanimously voted to reinstate the COVID leave policy. The board of trustees' next meeting will be held on July 20th. In today's feature report, we have Civic Conversations, a monthly podcast collaboration between the WFHB Local News and the League of Women Voters of Bloomington and Monroe County. In today's edition of Civic Conversations, host Jim Allison speaks with Jody Madeira, professor of law, IU Maurer School of Law, and Luis F. Nietzsche, faculty fellow, co-director for the Center of Law, Society, and Culture. Madeira discusses the status of abortion rights in the United States. We now turn to Civic Conversations. You are listening to Civic Conversations, a podcast collaboration between the League of Women Voters, Bloomington, Monroe County, and this station, WFHV. 
I'm Jim Allison, your host, and Becky Hill is our producer. We're very pleased to say that you can find Civic Conversations every month on WFHB at both 93.1 and 98.1 FM. Today, we're very pleased to welcome Jody Madeira. She is Professor of Law, IU Maurer School of Law, and she's Louis F. Neeser Faculty Fellow. And she's also co-director of the Center for Law, Society, and Culture. Welcome, Jody. Thank you for having me on. Very seldom, has, if ever, has our Supreme Court been so unpopular, seemingly poised as it is to nullify Roe v. Wade. To help us understand this unpopularity, I wonder if you could give us some idea of the major changes that Roe v. Wade brought to American society, especially to our women, but also in their own way to men nearly 50 years ago. What's going on here? Well, before Roe, nearly all states had outlawed abortion except to save a woman's life or in cases of rape or incest. And so women were not free to pursue educational and employment opportunities as they are today. Roe, in its own way, was absolutely necessary for equality. And the ability to control their reproductive lives has facilitated women's ability to participate equally in the economic and social life of America. It has taught us uh, something that I learned as a child, that I was equal with men in exercising control over my reproductive capacity. And pivotally, it allowed women to exercise reproductive choices safely. Before Roe, it was very dangerous to obtain an abortion at that time, especially for women who did not have the means to travel to a country or to a jurisdiction where abortion was safe. And there were many deaths due to botched procedures, due to infections, and many women experienced infertility result, as a result. And in fact, nearly 17 of all deaths, 17% of all deaths, I'm sorry, due to pregnancy or childbirth were the result of illegal abortion in, in those decades prior to Roe. Roe has also increased access to abortion. And jurisprudentially speaking, it set in place a legal precedent that has affected nearly 30 other cases and re revolutionized patients' abilities to choose their own healthcare trajectories, make uh, fundamental medical decisions, and reinstated and shored up parents' rights to make educational decisions for their children uh, and a lot of other rights that we don't even think of as being related to Roe to begin with. Okay, uh, that clarifies it a great deal. Uh, we've been hearing a lot lately about something called trigger laws, and many states have these laws, these trigger laws, regarding abortion already in place. What does this mean? What is a trigger law? How does it work? Well, a trigger law is not just tied to uh, Roe versus Wade, not just tied to abortion. It actually refers to any law that is on the books and that basically has no effect when it's passed, but it does uh, spring into action if there were to be a legal change. And so, for example, in uh, the 13 states that have trigger laws, abortion will instantly be made illegal if Roe versus Wade is overturned. And this results in some strange timing. So we're not sure exactly when the clinics must shut down. Those details are not covered. Um, and that puts in jeopardy women who get appointments uh, for abortions that day, physicians who are still practicing. There's a great many details actually to be worked out. Uh, we also know that uh, trigger laws uh, differ according to states. Um, and some you know, do sunset the procedure, Others, the procedure is not totally banned. It's banned in most circumstances. Others totally ban the procedure from that moment. Okay, thank you. Uh, right at the moment, my understanding is that about 54% of abortions right now are performed with various medications. Um, 
how do you think the courts and the legislators are going to handle medication abortion? Well, first of all, medication abortion has been on the staple of, of medical practice for more than two decades. The FDA approved these medications you know, over two decades ago. And legislators in 20 states have proposed bills that actually restrict or ban access. Um, right now, as it stands, the FDA uh, had a temporary ruling that it made permanent uh, in December of 2021 that patients for the first time can consult with prescribers via telehealth and actually receive the pills by mail. And unfortunately, what lawmakers in several states are poised to do are, is, is somehow to limit the access to that abortion medication. So we're talking about several different types of bills. Some bills would require patients to pick up pills at a medical facility. Uh, states like South Dakota would require them to take the pills under observation by medical professionals. Sometimes in other states, there would be an outright ban on dispensing or using the medications. Other lawmakers would simply seek to ban telehealth consultations. Um, and other states like Indiana actually takes a different route. They prohibit medication abortion after 10 weeks. This would certainly change if Roe versus Wade was overturned, and I believe they would prohibit medication abortion entirely. I see. Let's talk a, a little bit more about immediate effects. If the court does nullify Roe v. Wade, what can we expect to be the immediate effects on everyday reproductive rights? And would you expect these effects to vary from state to state? For example, might they be different in New York than in Indiana? And why and how does this work? That's an excellent question. So I believe there would be a series of immediate effects that we would observe, and the most prominent of which would be that the trigger laws in these 13 states would activate. And again, there would be a lot of confusion. Would, would physicians be prosecuted for continuing to practice that same day? If they hear on the radio that this opinion has come down, do they have to stop what they're doing and read it immediately? I mean, there's these details are just devils. We don't know the outcomes. Many other states, approximately half a uh, would actually enact as restrictive as possible, or they would seek to enforce laws that uh, were on the books before, for example. And I believe what you're looking at is then uh, states that are actually abortion deserts where it's illegal to access care and abortion havens such as Illinois. So millions of people that are actually living in these abortion deserts uh, in the Midwest and the South conservative strongholds would be traveling uh, abortion tourism, it's been called, to receive legal care. And of course, the, this is available to people with means, people who have jobs that do not allow them days off, people who do not have the money to travel, much less for the abortion procedure, would be unable to access abortion for financial and logistical and perhaps legal reasons. And so those choices actually have been faced by women in states already, uh, such as Texas, after the passage of Senate Bill 8, restricting abortion. And we have seen uh, women traveling to other states to uh, obtain this procedure. I believe it is a critical difference that the procedure will be different in, in states like New York, states like Illinois. Uh, it's going to be an altogether different landscape. In addition, however, uh, there is an underground movement that is going to start, that is going to facilitate the movement of women to safe abortion havens, uh, much as that, that existed prior to Roe. Abortion tourism, a very apt term. Let's get a little bit personal here. Let's talk about Justice Alito. Justice Alito is leading the court on his ruling, and he assures us that if we do, if they do nullify Roe v. Wade, that would not necessarily imperil such other related rights as 
gay marriage, racial intermarriage, and birth control. And my question is, can we believe Justice Alito? I believe we cannot trust Justice Alito with that assurance. And uh, his colleague on the bench, Justice Sotomayor, I believe has made that perfectly clear. Justice Sotomayor has said that the current conservative-leading Supreme Court is on track to undermine several rights, starting with uh, the abortion right. For example, uh, the right to same-sex marriage, the right to contraception, and of course, some rights will not be changed, the right to engage in educational choice uh, that are favored by conservatives. And I believe that even in Alito's opinion, in the leaked opinion, I should say, the draft uh, of Dobbs versus Mississippi Women's Health, you see clues. There is ultimately discussed for several rights that are also like abortion founded on privacy, uh, rights that Alito says are cheap because they are unenumerated in the Constitution. And uh, for example, at one point in the opinion, he states that the right to same-sex marriage and the right to engage in uh, sexual activity in one's home, uh, acts like sodomy in Lawrence versus Texas, um, are founded on the same principles as the right to illegal drug use would be, or the right to prostitution, that they're equally unenumerated, equally unworthy of protection. And if you're comparing those rights to acts that are very morally stigmatized and currently illegal, then that's not uh, a, a app, that's not a comparison that suggests that you support those rights. And so I, I do believe Justice Sotomayor is correct. Okay. So your answer to my question, whether we can trust Alito or not, <laughs> is somewhere between probably not and certainly not. Is that yes, correct? Yes, definitely. <laughs> definitely more towards certainly not. <laughs> okay, thank you for being so straightforward about that. Let's talk a little bit more about legal merits and law and constitutionality and things like that. The legal merits of Roe v. Wade were and remain controversial in the legal community. I wonder if you could summarize for us the pros and cons of that. Was it, do you think it was sound law or not? What do you think? I believe that the issue is very complex and, and there are things that Roe did that worked enormous changes for that were extremely positive in law and in American culture, but yet it has been the receipt of several apt criticisms by individuals such as Ruth Bader Ginsburg, whom most liberals and many, many actually conservatives uh, respected, if not loved. And immediate, the immediate effects were to put women on equal standing or somewhat equal standing with men in terms of being able to take advantage of educational and employment opportunities. And that was an effect that was quite rapid. Uh, state laws changed and the cultural effects of that change were, were very felt, uh, very strongly felt very soon. Uh, however, Ruth Bader Ginsburg said that uh, basically Roe versus Wade was too far reaching and too sweeping when it was uh, put into place as, as judicial precedent. It gave anti-abortion activists a very visible target. And she said that the right should actually have been secured more gradually in state legislatures and state courts, which is paradoxically the approach that we are going to take if the draft opinion is actually what uh, Alito releases as the majority opinion of the Supreme Court. And she also criticized Roe for being founded on the right to privacy and not on women's rights. She said that the opinion was not really women-centered, but it was about the physician's right to practice, not so much about women's choice. And I think that's probably the best criticism of the opinion 
Because if you look at the language of the leaked draft, women are not in that opinion at all. Women are invisible. There's nothing in there about women's economic rights, women's equality, the effects that reversing uh, Roe and turning the issue back to the states will have upon women. And it is entirely about the fetus. And so that I think is was a very apt uh, future uh, oriented criticism that turns out to be exactly correct. Okay, let me uh, preface the next question by pointing out, reminding the people that when Roe v. Wade was first passed, it wasn't even close. It was a seven to two vote. White and Rehnquist were the only dissenters. And when Justice Blackman uh, wrote that majority opinion in Roe v. Wade, he, uh, he was leaning on the right of privacy, which he thought was broad enough to encompass a woman's decision to end her pregnancy. And he thought that this right came from the due process clause pretty much straightforwardly from the 14th Amendment, which is, of course, a, a concept of personal liberty. But Justice Alito disputes this. He says that it's an enumerated right and therefore invalid. And my question for you is, who do you think gets closer to the original constitutional intention, Blackman or Alito? Is this a matter of interpretation or what? I do believe it's largely a matter of interpretation, but I do believe there's ultimately an answer as well. And that answer is that Blackman got closer to what the founding fathers originally intended. So there's two schools of thought as to constitutional interpretation. The first is originalism or textualism, and that's largely favored by conservatives. Uh, that orientation says, if it's really not mentioned in the Constitution or Bill of Rights, it doesn't or shouldn't exist. Or that we're going to look upon this as a secondary right, as opposed to, for example, something like the Second Amendment, which is enumerated. And uh, so these individuals would place great priority on the language of the Constitution, um, and particularly in the act of interpretation. And they even sometimes have questions or problems with constitutional interpretation itself. The other approach is more of a living constitution approach where we believe uh, this is more identified with um, liberals or moderates. And the constitution is not meant to cover every eventuality in the law. It's meant to set guidelines, set rails, uh, bumpers, as one might be for guidance for constitutional interpretation in the future. And of course, black men uh, and the right to privacy are more set in the living constitution world. Um, now, if we had been designed to go for more of an originalist or textualist interpretation, I believe that the United States would actually look like something we see in Europe, which is a code-oriented country versus a constitutional democracy. And in a country such as Germany that has a code, it's very different than our constitution. It specifies every eventuality. Everything is spelled out. The constitution, on the other hand, is very loose, very short. And it contrasts to thousands of pages of code. And so I think that the actual body of law, you know, which is a very short constitution, very short bill of rights, and enormous uh, body of constitutional doctrine that come from federal and state courts, um, basically shows that the act of interpretation is critical in a way that Alito uh, undermines by his enumerated versus unenumerated argument. Okay, thank you very much. One final question, though. And the question I'm asking personally, too, please tell us how in a nation that's founded supposedly for we the people, how is it that five elected unelected judges can simply nullify such popular rights as those protected by Roe v. Wade? Do we have no recourse at all? I think the answer to this question is affected by the ways in which the Supreme Court justices got on the bench as well. So we're looking for the first time 
in American history, or the first time many of us can remember in American history, at uh, presidential appointments that seem to be against normal procedure. For example, um, Merrick Garland w- was denied a set of confirmation hearings outright, although you know the seat that he was eligible for became available months before an election. Yet we also see um, a, a Supreme Court Justice, Amy Coney Barrett, being shoved in there very quickly prior to an election. And so it seems to be an issue of political gamesmanship, which also I think raises the stakes in looking at how five unelected justices determine law. And I believe that uh, this is why the Supreme Court is seen as political. This is why the Supreme Court's decisions are uh, being criticized perhaps more than ever. And I believe that more people are looking to state legislatures, um, state elections, and federal elections as a way in which to perhaps form a counterweight or balance to the Supreme Court opinions. Now, that approach has not been successful with Roe versus Wade. We have seen attempts to enshrine a right to abortion in federal law fail, but I don't believe that uh, necessarily those attempts are over. And certainly those efforts become very important on the state level if and when the issue is turned back to states as it appears it will be from Alito's leaked opinion. So call my legislator. Okay, Jody Madeira, thank you so much for, for being with us this afternoon. And to our listening audience, thanks for listening to us on Civic Conversations. This is Jim Allison, League of Women Voters, Bloomington, Monroe County. The League is a nonpartisan grassroots organization led by citizens that's fought since 1920 to improve our government and to engage all citizens in the decisions that impact their lives. I hope you can join us next month when we talk to Diane Legomsky. She'll be talking to us about the Bloomington Refugee Support Network and refugee issues in general. 